0: Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast, proudly brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In today's chat, writer Mputumi Ntabeni chats with author of Avenues by Train by the brilliant Farai Muzingwa, an eclectic experimental novel. Avenues by Train is a brash and confident debut by an exciting new voice. When seven-year-old Jedza witnesses a tragic accident involving a train and the death of his close boyhood friend in his hometown miner's drift, he is convinced that his life is haunted. Now in his mid-twenties, Jedza is a down-and-out electrician, moving to Harare in the hopes that he will escape the darkness and superstitions of the small town. But... Living in the shadowy, restless atmosphere of the avenues, with its mysterious pools of water rising under Musasa trees, he is tormented by the disappearance of his sister and their early encounters with the ancestral spirits. To move forward, he must stop running away and confront the trauma of his past. Enjoy the chat.
1: Good morning on behalf of Jonathan Ball podcast i have a guest wonderful writer from zimbabwe a writer of the newly published book that is called avenues by train which is uh, published by cassava press so i have as my guest today farai modzengwa coming from johannesburg we are happy to have him in south africa my name is Mputu mindabeni i am a a novelist of two books, historical novels, The Broken River Tent and uh, The Wanderers, that are mostly about the historical history of the frontier wars in the Eastern Cape. My guest Farai Modzengwa, is a freelance writer. His short fiction has been published by Weaver Press, and his log form articles and reporting have been featured in Chamaranga Chronic, The Mail and Guardian, The Johannesburg Review of Books, Africa is a Country. This is Africa, the Africa Report, A New Humanitarian. Farai was shortlisted for the Miles Molan Writing Scholarship in 2019, the Short Story Day Africa Competition 2019, and the Yvonne Vera Competition 2020. He was also longlisted for the Ritivism Competition in 2016. He lives in Harare.
2: Welcome to South Africa, Farai. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. The weather is good. The people are friendly, and yeah, Johannesburg is treating me well.
1: Well, it's a little bit too hot in the past few days. I hope you are you are not suffering too much. <laughs> Your book Avenues by Train for me reads, uh, especially in the narrative form, it reads much more accomplished than what it says on the cover. That it's by a debut novelist. So I can see now from reading your bio that you've been writing a little bit, but I am happy also to to see that you've been awarded few accolades, and I think this book will go far into your writing bio. But first of all, we are here not to talk about your bio, but your book. Whose uh, protagonist is Jedza, also known as Jerry? Is my favorite protagonist. I don't know for people who have uh, read the literature of uh, young people like let, let's say james joyce portrait of young artists as a young man and all those things and then since also we have uh, john Fosse, who has just uh, won the the nobel prize for literature i don't know if you've read uh, scenes from my childhood at some stage your, your your book especially the first part read more like that to me Uh, something like Between It and uh, even Ben Ockry's Femish book. Please tell us first about your writing influences before we we
2: talk about the book. Thanks, thanks. thanks. I think you kind of touched on on very interesting books. Portrait, I actually started reading. I only got about halfway before I got distracted. Um, (laughs) Famished (laughs) Famished Road as well. I actually got in, I think, a couple hundred pages in. So you're actually spot on in... I don't think they were at the top of my mind, but they certainly mm-hmm. were is that voice of, of the young boy from mm. Joyce and from Oakley was certainly in my on my mind when I was writing those. The other influences and but these are not for the for the for the actually for the young uh writing. One of my early, early influences, way before I even started writing, were the the children's books, the Enid Blyton, these famous what what are the famous five, Secret Seven? And funny enough, even into early adulthood, I actually enjoyed Spud, Johan van der Roet, And I, I, I don't know where it's classified, but I really liked how he captured Spud's character. And mm. I, that one was also top of my mind uh, when I was drafting, especially the, early, the earlier chapters that you... Uh, yeah. The later yeah. chapters would have been people like uh,
1: Stanley Young Thanks. I'm I'm very happy that you mentioned Spud, because uh, the comic element also come across uh, your wonderful book, which is a very accomplished voice that you gave that young man for a Derby novel. But also, another thing I was thinking about, uh, most of the time, actually, the book itself reads more like a, a creative nonfiction. You even put put notes on it. I know at the end you say, by you use those footnotes as a way of nudging the reader into the whole context of the book. But then I'm sure someone somewhere who is a conservative reader is like, why didn't he just put uh, a factor in the footnotes into the into the script? Why does he
2: need to distract us with, with footnotes? How do you answer that? <laughs> I think the time or at some stage when I was writing, I was reading Junot Diaz's The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Of Oscar and, Wilde. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. So I was, I was very fascinated by the use of footnotes in that book. And so when I was writing mine, I regard this. One way I look at it is a historical novel. So I did a lot of historical research, a lot of digging in the archives. And there was such a lot of archival information, historical data, that I wanted in the book, but also I did not want to overload a fictional work with so much historical data. So I think of the the criticism of, why didn't you just put it in, is very valid, because I actually made almost like a creative decision to not have too much, and you know, that's what is too much, (laughs) to not have too much uh, historical data or more nonfiction type data in the fiction and almost take it out and have it. And that's where the idea of the the footnotes came in. There was more to keep the fiction very fictional, in a way, and then to keep out the very useful, very necessary, non-fiction, almost historical exposition, but have that uh, in the form of footnotes.
1: I'm very glad you are saying that, because in your defense, when I was talking to someone about that, I said, well, I kind of understand it because if he had put it into into the narrative structure, it would have felt like an information dump. So I, I get it very well what you are, what you are saying. Moving on, um, Ferai Muzingwa, your book there's a part that uh, a very early on where a young girl disappears. I think her name was Teresa or something, and she disappears through the waters and all that stuff. And the community goes there to appease uh, the, what do you call it? Njuzu. You must tell me what that is, because it's an interesting thing, uh, to appease the Njuzu so that the girl can come back again. You know, uh, we have a similar thing in South Africa uh, among the Tosa culture of uh, so-called water spirits, and the communities will do that. Is it also prevalent in your culture, in the Shona spirituality?
2: It's very prevalent. Um, And what I... I've seen a lot of similarities, especially the, the water spirits, that water entity throughout Africa into the diaspora. It's, 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 so I'm actually not surprised that I'd never heard of the one you're referring to, the Osawan, but I'm not surprised at all. It's, it is so prevalent. Where I grew up, I grew up in these small towns outside the city, it, it was very prevalent. So any, and it's usually where you have these bodies of water that are dangerous. When, they're usually deep, still waters. Um, some of them are even considered sacred. That's where you have these, um, and I don't even want to call them beliefs, because I suppose they could be, but it's also, I, I feel beliefs is a bit reductive, because when I used to hear about these these stories of these takings or abductions, they were said very matter-of-factly. They were not said in a way of, oh certain people say this could be what, no, they were actually said very matter-of-factly as, oh, so-and-so lives. In that part of town, their kid got got abducted, got taken, or so and so has returned <laughs> from having been mm-hmm. taken. So these things are very widespread and say, very matter of factly. Uh, yeah. So I was just trying to explore that, you know.
1: Amazing, amazing. And as I as I said, uh, for instance, in the Corsa culture the where the river mouths, where the river meets the sea it's a very sacred space and so where for people who are called by ancestors they usually go there to meet up with the ancestors or for people who are who wants to become and all that stuff they go there and disappear for a few months so then before they they, they finish the process of ukutwasa, so that's what i was trying to say that that, that thing reminded me of, of of that so i was quite uh amazed on how African culture is the same wherever you go, because the practice of uh, water spirits and them as the interlink between the dead and the living is very prevalent in almost on all our cultures. In any way, you call this uh, a book of uh, exploration and uh, reconciliation between the anthropology and the Shona spirituality. And I was quite amazed on, on that. Uh, I, I understand the exploration part, but then the reconciliation part, because I felt like, Chuana Achebe, you were actually exposing where they differ, where they clash is. You understand? So I was quite surprised to hear you saying that, but it's a, it's kind of a reconciliation of the two. Can you explicate on that, please?
2: Yeah. Um, there's this relation. I think I have the conflicted relationship as well between, between me and anthropology, my understanding of it and its colonial leanings and origins, and also with our, our own culture as, as Africans, as Black people, the things we're talking about, these water practices, water spirits, and all of that. And my conflict ambivalence is, is a better word with anthropologists because of how our colonization happened, specifically in Zimbabwe. I think it's slightly different from, I think, South Africa and West Africa as well, where I think to a large extent, the African community societies were allowed to maintain and allowed literally maintain their cultural practices, especially to do with ancestors and practices and that sort of thing. Whereas in Zimbabwe, it was very, um, it was, it was disruptive to the point where if you wanted to, to earn, if you wanted to, you know, to make a living, to protect your livelihood, you actually had to take on a new name, uh, disregard your, your cultural beliefs, take on Christianity and all of that. And however, with all that said, in all of that came in the anthropologists were also recording and detailing our cultural practices. So I came up when I was doing this book in, in the research, my own understanding and knowledge and practice of our cultural norms was I'm also slightly alienated from my, my culture. And I had to use anthropological texts to get back in, to actually find the facts, you know, in quotes, details um, of my own people. But then my encounter with those actors, where I'm taking, I'm saying yes, this is this is something recorded from a colonial lens, but I read it critically through my own understanding as an African. So yeah, there's that's that's the conflict, that's the delicate uh, line I was I was trading there.
1: Yeah and yes, uh, I I did I did feel that you were trying to walk a very tight rope there. And I mean, uh, as as you know, that uh, the field of anthropology has been problematic uh, towards Africans, but we are not going to go there today. We are not going to go there today. Um, another interest for me is uh, your your thorough knowledge about trains. Was that prior to the book, or did it come from your research process?
2: I've actually never tried to. Yeah, I I I, I did not actually seek out. Knowledgeable trains, yeah. I think again, it 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 probably comes down to growing up in a small town that is farming and mining based. And I was growing up in the eighties, and the main at that time, at that point in, in in country's history, rail transport was a big was a big thing. So the rail the railway line and the rail industry itself was a major part of town. So the trains that always blackwood like here trains that that train horn sound. The number of times, especially late at night, early in the morning. And the train tracks divide. You know, you're going home, you're going to school, that sort of thing. So the, the train has always been this this almost central feature, you know, one of these central features growing up. And But when I started doing this book, the, the research for this book, the theme, once I got the theme going, the train just became... Almost a, a recurring feature. It would come up. So when I'm digging the colonial archives, the, the the wagons would come up. And then one of the driving features of colonization was this whole civilization project, which meant we want to extract, we want business, we want uh, to bring in things, we want to extract things. And one of the things they used to go on about was this is in the 18 no late 1800s. Was Rhodes talking about his 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 train from Cape to Cairo, from Cape Town to Cairo. So the colonial expansion was, that came through Zimbabwe was, one of the driving forces was, we're going to put rail, we are to connect everything by rail. So that theme kept coming up. And when I was writing even the childhood uh, sections of the book, one of the driving memories was always, you know, the, the train would feature, the train tracks would feature, the railway line would feature in my memories. So it was just this thing that was always there. Wonderful, wonderful. I could actually
1: hear, uh, as I read, that your knowledge of trains was not uh, just a, a research-based. It was more digested, and it came through very well into the story, naturally. So I really like that. Foray Mutzengo, in your book, uh, Avenues by Train, the protagonist, Gary, seems to have a, a traumatic relationship with her mom. Do you, do you want to say something about that? Because at some stage it felt a little bit too personal.
2: Let me just put a disclaimer uh, because <laughs> I've had this question a lot. Jerry is not me. Jerry's mother is not <laughs> my mother. <laughs> I bring it. My, my mother was a very lovely woman, but I also notice there is, and this is not to to to, to blame mothers or fathers or parents. I think our Oh, my parents' generation, they were products of their time. They acted how they acted because of what, you know, how they'd grown up, how they'd been nurtured, the environment they were growing up in in colonial times. And they were parenting how they knew how to parent. But in all of that, you know, some of those interactions did not come across, did not happen well for, for the for the children. And I was trying to explore that. There was a very disciplinarian approach to parenting that was prevalent uh, in the 80s and 90s. I, I I'm not sure if it's if it's still there now. There's a lot of debate about you know disciplining, physical, what is it, corporal punishment and all of that. But in the 80s, it was very one way. And what I'm also trying to explore in the book is where that comes from. It's I I do not believe it's cultural for for parents to be tough and beat their children and all of that. And I, I came across a bit of research that, that, that linked the colonial discipline of, you know, the, this penal system of punishing crimes and punishing deviants and all of this that had to do with caning. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, if you were a juvenile and you, you know, committed whatever offense, they thought, they, they understood, yeah, okay, fine, we're not going to put you in prison. But there was caning. You'd go to the, to the police uh, camp station and you'd get caned. And that is the same caning that happens in that happened in schools. And it was the same caning and beating that happened with, with, with our parents. So there's a disciplinarianism <laughs> that came across in the 80s and 90s through these authority figures, through these institutions, that it was school, the police, and parents that I was trying to, to go for. And There's also this disciplinary angle that comes from our families, our parents trying to protect us from colonial authorities. So our parents would have had it really rough. My parents would have grown up in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and African families had to manage and control their children. Otherwise, if they fell foul of colonial authorities, you know, they would get killed, they could die. So I get that protectiveness that, you know, and then Zimbabwe also went through a war in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So coming out of that into the 80s, you understand why people have fear and this protectiveness and it all comes from the trauma of pollen. And that's what Jerry's mother, you know, is is using to, to parrot.
1: Totally. I get that. And the worst part is that uh, she combines that strict disciplinarism that we grew up under with the later religious fanaticism that came with the born again era, which uh, fortunately I I didn't get because I was already an elder by that time. But I know exactly when you painted that kind of thing, and I, I could see those kind of parents. And uh, the funny thing is that the Christians are very quick to point out uh, superstition among uh, Africans or African spirituality, but then they never think, how can I say, they don't examine their kind of uh, Christian superstition. Because uh, most of the time when I look at this, especially with the so-called boner and uh, I see it more as superstition. And I define superstition as a belief in a supernatural power. I mean, irrational belief in in supernatural power without using your head. And that's what I I, I detected and I detested in, in Jerry's mom. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel that sometimes perhaps the, the Christians tend to malign too much the African spirituality without looking into their own uh, understanding of religion
2: also? Certainly, certainly. And it, it comes, remember our, our, our colonization as a Zimbabwe was mediated by, by the Christians, by Robert Moffat and and the missionaries. They, they were the, almost the interface between Rhodes and the, and the colonizers you know, us as a people. And in Zimbabwe, Christianity replaced our beliefs. So there, there was no parity. It, it was part of that whole project of, if we're coming here to quote-unquote civilize you, we are civilizing you in all aspects, economically, societally, religion. And remember, our way of life was centered around community and our reverence for, for ancestors, or cultural practice, they all revolved around community and the, what we call a shikiro, who you would call in this country, almost like a familial spirit. I don't know if Sangoma covers it, but you've got the spiritual person in the village who is almost this interface with the ancestors, that type of person. And they, they had influence over communities. And the colonial project could not work with these centers of power. With these, that sat with these community spiritual leaders, so that had to be raised, and that's where it all went. And by the time Jerry's mom is in the 80s, she's totally alienated from her cultural, spiritual upbringing, all those values, and she's taken on Christianity, which she also then goes on to use to get what she needs out of parenting. She she channels this authority of this omnipotent God and these biblical texts to use, you know, to help her in, in, in parenting. Uh, the, Pente- the Pentecostals and the Evangelicals will come even later are just, you know, magnitudes uh, greater, but still along the same line. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you.
1: You know, once I traveled to India with some friends and most of them were British And then, you know what surprised me most, the reverence that white people got from Indians. I couldn't understand because I would have expected the Indians to hate white people, but they treated them like almost like gods. And then I asked one of my Indian friends, why is this? His answer surprised me. He he said, you know, Indians have a strange nostalgia for the British era epoch because then it introduced order into into India. There was order. Things were working. Trains were, were, were operating. Supermarkets had food and all that stuff. Reading your books, I, I sometimes felt like uh, it's as if you yourself, and no, actually not you, your protagonist, was hungering for the time uh, where there was order
2: in Zimbabwe and all that stuff. Am I too wrong on So I, I take it you're referring to, to Jerry when, when he's younger, like the first three chapters
1: or so. Basically, I'm not even talking about the interaction with other races. I'm just talking about uh, the fact that uh, he's always looking back rather than looking forward, which I understand, which I understand because things had fallen apart. So he's always had this nostalgia that when he was growing up in the 70s, the trains were moving and everything else was operating and the supermarkets had food and all that stuff. That's what I mean.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so, so with that, there, there are two things. And I am just trying to hold the second one in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> my mind. The first one is, so what you'll find is with the first three chapters, I think the first one, actually, Jerry's not born yet, 70s, and then mm. 80s and 90s, the second, the second and third chapters. There's, what I was trying to convey there is the childhood nostalgia. So mm. when we're children, we, we are just kids. We're experiencing the world as it is. We're, we have our parents, you know, siblings, grandparents. You you don't yet have the overall context of what is happening beyond your your experience of life. Yeah. So when you're a kid, there's this list of you. Just want to wake up. You want food. <laughs> Once you've had food, you want to watch TV. You want to go play. Yeah, you want to go play with your friends. You want to do. And when that is done, you want to come home, you want to sleep. You're always very limited. You know, you don't have the broader context of what might be going on outside. It, it's good. I think uh, parenting, growing up in a, in a secure family should do that. It should shield you as a child. You're not supposed to be too aware of the negativity out there. And then there's, there's two things that happen. Uh, that's also how I look at this. There's this novel as a, as a coming of age. Jerry grows up Firstly, so, and this is the second part. So as a grown-up, he's reflecting on his younger life, his past. And he's realizing, yes, things were working, things were going well. But he's also coming to the realization that things were working in a certain context. Uh, we had inherited a certain society that was working for, you know, some people and define working. Because that working also disrupted other people. So there's all that going on. And then there is the genuine grievance for what is not working or working in our country. So complaints about basic infrastructure, water, roads, education, health, that criticism does not necessarily mean I want what we had. It's criticizing what is happening now, what is going on now, without hankering for the past and all its complications. Foray Mutzenwa
1: in your book, which is uh one of the best books I've read for by any debut writer this year you you say that music, especially uh Mbira music, plays a particularly role in your writing process. Do you wanna talk about that a little bit for us
2: certainly certainly. Thanks thanks for the kind words. I think there's a, well, I feel a certain connection with music in general, but Nbira music in, in, in particular. And just just a little digression. I think when I first started listening to Thomas Matomo, who you will see is, is is quoted throughout the book and even in the acknowledgement section, I actually realized that this and Thomas Malfumo, for those who may not be familiar with him, he's, just think of Oliver tukudzi who I think is the the bigger, more well-known export from Zimbabwe. And Malfumo is, you know, similar in stature, but going back to the 70s and 80s and the 90s. So in any case, when I started listening to him, and we had records all over the house, you know, the LPs, I realized that the songs of his that I liked were the ones where he did they were actually based on mbira music that had been transposed onto electric guitars and drums and the bass guitar uh, and that sort of thing and that was my the beginning of my connection with, with mbira music it took me a while years to realize that that's what's what's going on and i like the structure of of mbira music it's it's got a i think they call it poly poly rhythms, polyphonic rhythms or polyrhythmic melodies it, it almost puts you in a, in, a, in a trance. And I used it a lot when I was, when I was writing. Uh, one of my, my writing inspirations, uh, Walter Mosley, talks about how when you're writing, you know, you have a schedule. You, you sit at the desk at the same time every day for the same type of period. And what you're trying to do is enter into this mind space of whatever you are writing, because you're carrying it all in your subconscious throughout the day. And you want to tap into that when you sit down and review what you wrote the previous day, get back into that that world of those characters, those voices, and you get into it. And what I found was Mubira music aided that a lot in my writing. So the same beta song, these and they're long, some of them go up to an hour. And it, I would just sit down, put the song on, and it would just 10, 15 seconds, I'm back in that mind space of the book. That's how I used it practically. And then... In the book and in Shona society in general, Mbira music is almost the music of, of spirituality. It's the music that's played at these Mbira ceremonies where we consult the ancestors, the family ancestors, the community ancestors, the national ancestors. It's usually to, a, to Mbira music. And what you'll hear is different ancestors have their favorite songs, that when those particular songs are played during that ceremony, that is what entices them to to present themselves. So there are a lot of layers at which uh, I used music in, in this book.
1: Wonderful. This again translate and coincide with our own culture also because the drum beat and all that stuff. You know that we've been told that if you want to communicate with the ancestors, there must be a drum beat and all that stuff. In any case, you talk about entering into mm-hmm. into a, uh, a trance. So, are you one of the writers who regards himself as a medium, a medium of ancestors, or whoever? Oh no,
2: no, not 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 at all. I wish that was me. I would love to have that <laughs> in my, in my bio, in my CV, but no, I'm not. It's a very interesting concept when, cause I heard this from an American writer who was talking about tapping into your subconscious. He refers to writing almost like a spiritual process. And so when I'm talking about a trance, yes, there's that overlap where. In spiritual settings where you have ancestors arriving and, you know, people are dancing, they entranced, uh, ancestors are speaking through people who are also entranced, I think music can do that. I think certain cultural expressions can do that. And I think getting into it when I'm writing, I think I've seen musicians get into that, that zone where they are, especially jazz musicians, where they're performing a piece and they're improvising, where they're yeah. in that zone and they're just flowing. And I think there's different crafts and practices and cultural expressions, artistic expressions, where you get into that state. I wish it was ancestral. I would love to have ancestors by my side while I'm writing. But mine is more of a, I, I don't know how to explain it, but there is an, I do enter into a a state where it's like an unbroken flow of, in my subconscious level, where I'm just tapping into things I've written, things I want to write about, and I'm inhabiting these characters and spaces. I'm in this space, and I'm just putting things down on the page and then to
1: to edit later. I totally get you. Trust me, I understand what you're saying. A topic for another time between the both of us when we're having coffee. Uh, Lastly, (laughs) let me ask... Let me ask something. On, on the book also, you you use different voices, and you use first, second, third, and even in between. <laughs> uh, were you not scared that uh, it will uh, give, uh, give some critique from conservative uh, readers especially, that it tires the reader from floating from one voice to another? I've heard that being said about my own work. I did have
2: concerns about that aspect in particular. And other other aspects, and I'll have to give a shout out to to my editor. She understood exactly why those voices were necessary in their multiplicity. And it also comes down, funny enough that you mentioned the the question I think before this one about mira music. That the, the polyrhythms I mentioned, Bira music is a communal is a communal. It's not a performance for an audience. It's, and it's I think it's the same thing that you talk about the drum in closer. Musicians perform, everyone takes part, everyone see. There's no who can sing, no, exactly. everyone sings, everyone performs, those who play, play. Yes. And you get different choruses. One drum plays something, one beat plays something, uh, one those shakers, I'm not sure what they're called, they play something, and then you've got different types of vocalizations, Mawangera, I forget what the other one is, and then you've got this call and response. There are a lot of choruses going on. And I wanted that multiplicity of voices also in, in in the story. So, for instance, one character will have a very intimate POV where they, they are feeling things on their skin, they are smelling things. Uh, it's a very visceral, within 20 centimeters of their body. They are feeling all these things, experiencing all these things. And then they're also experiencing things further apart in the country in general, things that have been happening over 10 years. So there's all these in and outs, and then you've got, I think, one of the chapters with the these choruses type. It's not the only one. It's it's there's the one where Jezza arrives in town. He's he's going moving to to the avenues. There's choruses that are almost exposition where they're giving you details about the sentiment of people who live in Arari, the sentiment they have towards the city, the sentiment they have towards the economic prospects of of the country, the hardships, and those are the they're told in a in a in a first person plural the we chorus that contrasts with Jedza's I chorus. It's, it's just a method of what I was trying to get different voices, different perspectives, all in the story. And as you say, as you correctly put it, in the beginning, like in one of the earlier drafts, it was a mess. It was I was actually. At, at some point, before I got on to the, started working with the editor that I, that I worked with in the final uh, manuscript, Mary, I was actually stuck. I did not know how to combine and blend in these different voices. And then she came in with this wealth of knowledge of how to play around with those voices, how to, and I think what's jarring for for readers is that transition where you have, firstly, someone is very intimate pure. Uh, point of view and then you next thing they're jumping to something else and then they jump back in and they and that's what my novel was, what my manuscript was like. So I worked with an editor to craft that those smooth transitions. And we actually restructured that all the POVs come in one place and then they flow into the next uh, point of view. They flow into the next voice and they flow back in. It was a lot of work. It was basically profiting with
1: the editor. I, I must uh, definitely add and applaud your editor because the book reads very well. It's properly edited and the flow is uh, sometimes where I, I would have expected not to work. I'm amazed how it works. You understand? And uh, I, I could see myself uh, the hand of a competent uh, editor behind it. But in any case, you yourself has, have written a very good uh, manuscript. I'm sure you gave a, a very good manuscript, and it's a very good book. And uh, I would urge anyone who wants to read something a little bit eccentric and uh, experimental, but it uh, works at the same time in in a in a sense of a narrative, a usual narrative form. I would urge them to to do that and. Uh, I discovered while while reading it that uh, it's very important also to take it in chunks because it's almost like a beautifully connected essays and then and all that stuff and so and that way you you don't get too jarred by the the transition from one voice to another. Lastly, because I wondered, I hope that I am not ambushing you on this. Do you have a copy of your book in front of me? because I'd like you to read us something, a passage from page 200. Oh, this is
2: awesome. And, and, and I like that you, you have a passage that you want to read specifically. It's, it's not, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm very authoritarian. <laughs> I I'm, to go. <laughs> I'm very authoritarian
1: in, in that sense. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. No, I, I love that passage because to me, it, it, it kind of a, it's, a, it's a light passage of the whole
2: book. Okay, so this is page 57. I think just a a bit of context. This is... Yes, yes, please. The final chapter, Jedza, the little boy that we met in the the first part of the book, he's now Jedza, he's an adult, and he's gone through his journey, he's reconciled what he has had to reconcile, and this is almost like a homecoming, back to where everything started. No one ever returns once they leave. Those who leave town and country with dreams of coming back one day will sit around in their adopted homes, wondering how the years have slipped by so fast. And how come they still haven't made that grand return in the big car with smooth skin, a diaspora accent, and kids who only speak English? Pleasantries end with the ever-useful. Otherwise, how is everything else? We do not exchange numbers, and when I leave, I have a small, compliant black coat slung over my shoulder. I carry on towards the railway crossing with slight unease. The distance between the highway and the railway line feels much shorter now. When we rode out as boys, it felt like an epic cycle tour. We would never have been able to ride so confidently through all these crowded bodies and vehicles. The lead up to the crossing is mostly built up now. Structures that seem undecided on their state of completion. Speakers blaring out at entrances. Passers by lingering around shopfronts. I keep walking through where the buildings end then carry on in the descending darkness, alone now on a dirt track leading up to the railway line. The railings at the train tracks have fallen away. One or two rusted stays jut through tall grass and clumps of bushes. I step onto concrete sleepers and look down at the two rails. The quarry stones are barely visible. Looking up, I stare down the rails, to the right, then to the left. There is minimal pedestrian or vehicle traffic here now. The new main crossing is a distance farther down to the right. I place the lightly bound goat on the ground, feel around in my pockets for a pinch of four draw out the small ball of paper and shoot up. The rush is instant and I sneeze right away, give myself a second to regain my balance and brush the top of my nose with my sleeve. In that moment, I am the boy on the cycle racing towards the line. I'm also the train coming back into town. Elbows flared, little legs pumping and eyes teary. Leading one moment and Takunda passing me the next. The sound of the train horn drowning out my thoughts briefly. And then the slow tumble. The tumble that has been locked away in some vault within me. And the fog horn that sounds an alarm every time my mind wanders towards those memories. I go down on my knees and clap, as instructed by Mbuyadzi, My cupped hands boom. In the recess of the approach to the tracks,
1: wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Farai Modzengwa. Lastly, as we wrap now, I sometimes wonder—I don't know if you do also—that uh, some of us who have experienced and now are experiencing also the worst that has or is coming from our so-called liberators that anybody blames us when we sometimes hiccup and i mean hiccup in a faulty way when we dream in a nostalgic way of the past that worked as the indians will call it that but in the past the british they they they, they brought uh, they brought us order and of course they brought us colonialism they brought us oppression but without forgetting or forgiving them for what they did, they also brought us that order, especially with the infrastructure. Is it any wonder we sometimes hiccup and uh, want to remember those days?
2: I, I actually sympathize with, uh, or rather empathize uh, with that sentiment. And for me, that sentiment is a indictment on... Our so-called liberators, and I say so-called because liberation exactly. was, a, was a an effort by everyone. was it, yes. it not yes. one small group of people who liberated others. Yeah. So, and I think when people, as I think it's Ama who said, you know, fundamentally we just want revolution, whatever you call it. It's people just want material things. They want food on their table, send their kids to school, have a happy family. And when people are failing to do those things. We look at the people that we have voted into power to correct things and say, but what are you doing? And it is right. We have to point out their failures. And by the time people are looking back and saying things were better there, however faulty that may be, I think for me it's an indictment of the failures, how the people in power have failed, the people they represent. So I empathize with, the, with, the, with those people. I totally
1: agree with you. And in our parents, that that is very common because our parents grew up under that system. And of course, uh, sometimes we forget that but things, even that order worked only for a certain people, not everyone. So the lights were on for the white race. The taps were flowing for the white race. But we also... Uh, Expected more from our liberators, which at this particular moment we feel that they've let us down. But I am not going to go into politics with you. <laughs> we everybody knows what is happening in our respective countries. At this stage, I want to thank you for violing yourself so that I can interview you on behalf of Jonathan Ball Pagecast Podcast. Avenues by Trains by Faraim Mzingwa is published by Cassava Press. And in South Africa, it is distributed by Jonathan Ball. And now it is available almost in all major bookshops. Do yourself a favor and get a copy, and you'll be wonderfully surprised. Thank you, everyone.